We are embarking by the grace of God upon a journey through the faith of others. We will travel in the coming weeks past the towering pillars of faith in God who have gone before us, leaving an indelible mark not only upon their own generations, but upon all generations which have followed. Job, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, the prophets, our Lord Jesus, Paul, holy men, humble men, wise men, good men. All of them suffered terribly, yet overcame their pain with good. They all suffered. In fact, the men and women of greatest faith were always those of greatest suffering. God reserving the hardest trials for those whom he knew could stand in faith against the strongest gales and the hottest suns. But what did these holy men and women know about God that kept them from bitterness and malice when they were mistreated? Their suffering was far too great, far too real ever to have been endured and overcome with nothing but religious cliches. They had to know God. They had to have had real contact with God. Superstition and supposition are absolutely worthless when you're hurting. When the hurting is real, you must have real healing. You must have real faith based not on second-hand information about God. Friend, we must know God if we hope to survive the bitter disappointments and losses which characterize this life. God caring about our feelings. God desiring that we overcome the confusing hurt which this life often inflicts upon every one of us has given us examples to go by, placing good men in crushing situations that we may see how to overcome the crushing situations which will face us. Despite what some try to claim in faith, something bad happens to every human being who lives on this earth. There is no such thing as living in this world without being hurt. The righteous men whose sometimes bitter lives are recorded in the Bible knew God. Now that's very important for us to know. If we know that they knew God and obeyed God, then we can believe that what they did was right to do. And what they said about their trials is trustworthy as an example. If we believe that the righteous men whose bitter experiences are recorded in the Bible, if we believe that they knew God, then we can believe that their attitudes were godly attitudes and that we can learn from them and be shaped by their attitudes after a godly sort. 
In other words, we put ourselves in a position of being able to receive the help which God intends for us to receive from the Bible when we admit that those biblical characters knew God, that they knew what they were doing. When we confess that they knew God, we put ourselves in a position to learn God for ourselves. And if we do that, then the victory which saints of old experienced through their trials will become our victory which we will experience through our trials. My friend, if you are confronted now with sorrow, with loss, with disappointment, with grief, or even with sickness or disease, God is offering you help. That is why the Bible is even given to us. Your healing and comfort is the reason the Spirit of God has been sent to this earth. Jesus is alive for you. Jesus lives for you. He's not against you. And God is good. He lives for your healing. And it was in part faith in God's goodness that gave those ancient holy men hope enough to bear their burdens without bitterness until God's deliverance came. It was their faith in God their faith that God was good and not only that, their faith, their believing that God's goodness is available that gave them hope to overcome their crushing trials until God's deliverance came. You need to believe that God is good but that is not good enough for you. You must also be persuaded to believe that the goodness which God is, is available. Believing that God has power is good, but it's not good enough unless you add with that faith that that power is available. What good for your health? is God's goodness and God's power if it's not available for your healing. What good is your believing that God has all power if you don't believe He will shed that power into your life so that you may become followers of the faith that knows God and overcomes, not just endures, not just puts up with suffering, but overcomes it. I am... By God's mercy and His ordination, bringing to you in the coming weeks the revelation of truth, which Jesus Christ through His Spirit gave to me. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. Peter said, if any man speak, let, him be, let it be as the oracles of God. The prophet Hosea said, my people are perishing because of lack of knowledge. Solomon said, without a vision, the people perish. My Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We must have real contact with God. And I'm so grateful 
that God has shown me the truth. And I want to share it with you for your healing and for your joy. My father, who is now with the Lord, George Clark, who pastored for some 60 years or more, encouraged me to do a study on discerning the Lord's body. It was a difficult study to accomplish. There is only one verse in the entire Bible which mentions discerning the Lord's body. It's found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning with verse 28 we read, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now I read that verse, and it was very frustrating because there was no reference to it. There's nowhere else I could turn. And I, and I wondered what were they doing to cause this suffering? How were they failing to discern the body? They knew who was in the body. Because in the next chapter, Paul writes, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. They knew that without the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you weren't born again. They didn't have trouble discerning who was in the body. They were having trouble discerning something else. There's more to discerning the body than just discerning who's in it. What were these Corinthians failing to discern about the body of the Lord? In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he tells how we get into the body. The Corinthians didn't have any trouble with that. They knew how you entered into the body of Christ. But Paul goes on here in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 12 to say, For the body is not one member, but many. And this is the issue which the Corinthians were wrestling with. They didn't fail to discern who was in the body. They, desert, they failed to discern who's who in the body. As Paul would say earlier in this chapter, verses 4, 5, and 6, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul would write to these people. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. This was a problem with the Corinthians. They knew who was born again and who wasn't, but they did not recognize the authority which God had established among them. They were without government. Now, there's no peace where you have no order. And yet there is no order where you have no government. And where you have no government, you have a failure to discern individuals' places in the body of Christ. They failed to discern who it was that God had sent to teach them, who God had raised up to be their pastor, who God had raised up to be their overseer. They failed to discern individual places in the body of Christ. This is greater than knowing who is in the body. It is greater to know who's who in the kingdom of God than it is to know who's in the kingdom of God. In the 12th chapter of Romans, in the third verse, Paul says, 
For I say through the grace of God given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. If you don't recognize the voice of your shepherd speaking to you tonight through this radio broadcast, you are failing to hear and to acknowledge the government of God. I know the experience that I had with Christ which brought to me this light. Failure to submit to the authority which God has established results in disorder, in strife, in stubbornness, in rebellion, in division, and sickness, and even in the case of the Corinthians, and in the case of many today, premature death. Now when I saw this particular aspect of discerning the Lord's body, I thought that this greater light on discerning the Lord's body that I had finally come to made me arrive, so to speak. How little I knew that the greatest was yet to come. Because as far as discerning the Lord's body is concerned, the greatest thing to discern is the Lord Himself, the head of the body. And it was after a quiet time of study on suffering and faith in late 1981, that the Holy Ghost spoke to me and opened my eyes to be able to discern God, my Father, in everyday circumstances, doing good things for me. The moment had arrived for God's revelation to burst into my life. I was studying the attitude and teaching of holy men concerning their sufferings. My spirit was moved by their faith and their love in the midst of it all. Psalm 119, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. These scriptures and others like them moved my spirit, made a deep impression upon me. I felt such love of God and confidence in God. And after some time of study, I was closing my Bible and putting away my pen and papers when the Spirit of God spoke these words to me. He said, it tickles the devil for God's people to blame their troubles on him. And when the Spirit said that, God's understanding exploded within me. With a brilliant light, I very nearly staggered with the beauty and the power of it. I rose up and walked out to my front porch, and I remember standing there alone, above the wide steps leading up to my porch, looking up into the sky in awe of the depth and the breadth and the height of what God had shown me. The words of the ancient holy men which I had just studied, now I understood. They had moved my spirit, they had touched my spirit before. But it took the Holy Ghost to open the truth into my mind. So that now I understood what my spirit was being so moved by. 
It tickles the devil for God's people to blame their troubles on him. Now I understood why David had said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Now I understood why he said, I know God that thou in righteousness and in faithfulness hast afflicted me. It was good for David to be afflicted because God was the one afflicting him. I understood why David could be so patient and loving and kind when others were treating him wrong because he considered it to be nothing else but the chastisement, the correction, the education which God had appointed for him. I understood now why Joseph loved and cared for his deceitful brothers. He was able to love them because he considered God to be really the one who had sold him into Egypt. When he faced his brothers, he said, I know that you meant it unto evil, but God meant it unto good. I understood now how Jesus could feel the spikes piercing his hands and his feet, could have the thorns pressed down into his brow, could have his flesh ripped off his back by the whips of the Roman soldiers and could hang there in agony on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He could do that because he considered what was happening to him to be the cup which his father had given him. Friend, as long as you're blaming somebody other than God for what you're going through, you will never escape hatred. You will never be able to love your enemies as long as you hold them responsible for what God has determined that you should suffer. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be examining the stories of the greatest men of faith so that we can understand not only that they trusted God to be in full control of their suffering, but so you can understand why it was right for them to do so. It's one thing to hear Joseph's words, God meant it unto good. It's one thing to hear Job say, the Lord gave and the Lord, not the devil, the Lord has taken away. It's one thing to hear David say, it's good for me that I have been afflicted. It's one thing to hear Jesus say, the cup which my father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? And it's another thing altogether to be able to understand why they were right and why you are right only if you have that same confession. When someone has lied about you, can you say, I know that this is one of those all things working together for my good because I love God. And God is just putting me to the test. I want you to stay with us for the next few coming weeks now. As we examine the lives of the men of greatest faith. To learn from them what kind of attitude we should have. When we face the hard things in life. The same. He's the fragrance of heaven, the man unleavened. He's the song of the song.
work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Hello, my dear friends. This is the Pioneer Broadcast, and I'm John Clark, inviting you to stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we study the subject of all things. I have learned by the Spirit of God that God is in control of every circumstance of our lives. God is God. God alone is God, and that is why we can say with faith in him that we know that all things, even the bad things, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I want you to stay with us now, and let's examine how Abraham lived out this truth. I'll be back. He's the fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. Jesus forever the same. He is Lord. He is Lord in heaven. He is Lord on earth. He is Lord everywhere. Jesus is Lord. Being Lord means you have dominion. Being Lord means you have control. God has not lost control of his creation. He has not lost control of anything in heaven or anything on earth. God has never been under the threat of losing command. God is God, always has been God, and always will be God. Hallelujah! This week we are studying the patriarch Abraham, whom Paul calls the father of all the faithful. Abraham was a man of such faith and such love and such compassion and such godliness in his moral conduct that God called him his friend. I think, however, that we miss the point of Abraham's faith because we fail to understand the world in which Abraham lived. The ancient world was completely submerged in idolatry. Spiritual darkness covered the earth. Now there was great intellect and there was great interest in spiritual matters. Great expense attended the religions of earth. Men were interested in the things of God. Every social stratum was permeated with this spiritual ignorance of the truth. 
the greatest human beings who ever walked the earth in the ancient world were very spiritual men, but they all believed polytheism. Polytheism was the standard by which all mankind lived. The greatest minds that ever existed in the history of the human race outside of those who knew God, such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, were fixed on the worship of many gods. The dying request of Socrates was that a, an offering be made to a certain god for the sake of Plato, who was sick at that time. Political, military leaders who reshaped the boundaries of ancient nations and fixed human civilization in new courses were filled with this same spiritual blindness. So worship of gods was the standard. It was the norm in the ancient world. And if you could think on that for a few moments, you would easily see that the result of this faith in many gods the result of polytheism was utter confusion. How are you going to worship? If you live in the ancient world, how are you going to worship? Well, that depends on which God you're going to worship. Different gods have different rituals. Different gods require different animals. That you offer different parts of the animals. That you worship them on particular days. While with other gods... It was forbidden to worship them on those days. It was a terrifying world in which to live because there was a constant fear you might displease one God or another. There was utter confusion in how to live. When you traveled, you would feel obligated along the way not to bypass any temples of any gods along the way for fear that one of them would be displeased and your trip would not be prosperous. To fail to honor the God of a certain city through which you may pass would mean that you would run the risk of displeasing the inhabitants of that city because they would fear that the God of that city would attack them for allowing you to pass through without showing them homage. It is difficult to do, but try to imagine such a world. Try to imagine living in such a world. Gods were in the mind of mankind, all mankind, the wise, the rich, the powerful, the poor, really as men. Humankind thought of gods as being big men in many respects. In the ancient classic called the Iliad, the chief of the gods, Zeus, is said to have been seduced by his wife, so that the army she favored and he opposed could win a battle while his attention was drawn away. Can you imagine believing that the chief of the gods could have his attention taken completely away from this earth so that this earth was without the attention of the chief of the gods? The male gods, it was believed, occasionally sired children by human mothers and human men sired children by female gods. It was a world of utter spiritual darkness filled with fear that you had displeased one of the gods, that you had inadvertently transgressed or wandered into a battleground where two or more of the gods had begun to fight. You never knew when one god would 
become angry with another, and they would have a fight. And if you were caught in the middle with no sin on your part, you could be destroyed. Let me read you an example here of a, the wife of a ruler traveling in the ancient world about the time of Abraham. She was traveling from a city called Gersu to a city called Lagash just about the same time that Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan. She traveled from Gersu to Lagash, and on the way there, it is recorded on this little clay tablet with cuneiform inscription that she sacrificed on the way from one city to the other nine goats, eight sheep, and three lambs to 13 different gods in six different temples, a chapel, and one libation spot. And then, perhaps for travel insurance, she offered one kid of the goats at a certain place for the sacred chariot. Now, what if you were poor and you wanted to travel from Girsu and Lagash and you didn't have the animals to do that? Can you imagine the terror that would reign in your heart if you even dared to make the trip? Can you imagine believing in the power of these gods and not having the animals to sacrifice to the 13 gods and the six temples and the chapel and the libation spot? Can you imagine the terror when night fell and strange noises filled the forest because you had passed a temple and had not had the animal to sacrifice to those gods? It required great expense to travel with peace of mind in the ancient world. Solomon says that, that a man typically who traveled a lot came to poverty. You can see why. A great sum of money was required in order for you to have peace of mind in the ancient world to travel from one place to another. Or what if you were uneducated as the vast majority of the ancient world was. What if you didn't have the, the understanding of how different gods were to be worshipped? What animals were to be sacrificed and you wanted to travel from one place to another? You can see that the poor in the ancient world were terribly oppressed. The revelation of God is a great one, isn't it? And his love for the poor is spelled out very clearly when he reveals himself. In Genesis chapter 12, we read of Abraham traveling from one city to another, from one country to another. Now, this is before God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, but it's the same man. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, Abram departed. He left the city of his nativity, Ur of the Chaldees. Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Now he left Ur of the Chaldees, he went to Haran, and finally from Haran he went to Canaan. He left Haran here in verse 4. Verse 5, Abram took Sarai his wife. This was before God changed her name to Sarah. Took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran or Haran. 
And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Into the land of Canaan they came. Do you hear that? That means that he's walking from the city of Haran after he has come there from Ur, coming into the land of Canaan, into the land where the gods of Canaan were supposed to have ruled. Every tribe and every nation in the land of Canaan worshipped many gods. They worshipped the gods of this valley, the gods of that hill, the gods of that river, the gods of the sea, the gods of the Jordan River Valley, the gods of the Salt Sea. And any person who traveled from Mesopotamia to Egypt by land had to go through the land of Canaan. And they all paid homage to the gods of that land for safety. Not only from the fear of the gods, but fear of the inhabitants of the land, lest they should provoke them. But look at what Abraham did when he came into the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, into the plain of Mori, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there Abram built an altar, not to Baal, but to God. Abram built an altar to Jehovah. He had the faith of David who said, I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Abram was a stranger in this strange land, filled with strange worship of strange gods, as was every other land on the face of the earth. But though he was a stranger here, though he was a stranger in Haran, though he was a stranger when he went down to Egypt, he was a stranger in every place. But he did not bow the knee to the fear of either men or their gods. The Canaanites could have attacked him for this disregard of their gods. Abraham risked his life by raising up that altar in the land of Canaan. You see that so often overlooked when we read this story, Abraham went into a strange land and raised up an altar to a strange God, to those people. My friends, that's what Abraham did in the land of Canaan. He came into that land of Canaan believing that God possessed both heaven and earth. He came into the land of Canaan believing and trusting that God was the judge of all the earth. He did not believe that any being in heaven, in earth, or under the earth, except God, could either bless or curse him. He had all his eggs in one basket. He trusted none but God. He trusted none but God to be God over his life. Do you hear what Abraham is doing. Do you trust God that way? That is the faith of Abraham. It is contrary to every spirit of this age. He trusted God to be behind every affliction which he may suffer. He trusted God to be in control of every blessing which he may receive. Do you? Are you of the faith of Abraham? Are you of his faith and love of God and knowledge of God? Or do you divide your faith between God and the devil? Do you divide your fear 
between God and the devil. Wherever you are tonight, my friend, whether you're at home in your living room or bedroom, whether you're riding in your car or truck down the road, whether you're visiting friends in their home, whether you're in the hospital, wherever you are, you need to know that you know that you know that God is God. That means that God is the God of the circumstances which surround you. Ignore the vain threats of the spirits of this age. Ignore the displeasure of men and wherever you are, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, in whatever territory you find yourself, honor God. Maintain the standard of God. Raise up the altar of God wherever you are because, friend, God is the one in whose hand is your very breath. You can maintain the standard of God in whatever circumstance you are in, but you can do it only if you are fully persuaded, as Abraham was, that the results of your actions will be determined only by God, and that the devil has no say-so in your life. You can't walk with God as Abraham did. You can't walk with God as you want to, as long as you are clinging to the worldly perspective as long as you are clinging to that blind and foolish and spiritually darkened notion that the devil will get you if you don't do right. Listen, my friend, the truth is much more fearful than that. The truth is that God may get you if you don't do right. Fear God, Solomon said. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. You see, that blind and foolish and spiritually darkened notion that the devil will get you has a divided heart. It fears God some and it fears the devil some. That's idolatry. That's the same idolatrous spirit that plagued the ancient world. That's the spirit which Abraham had no part with. He raised the standard of God. The fear of God was demonstrated to all the inhabitants of Canaan through Abraham. It is the wrath of God, not the wrath of Satan, which we must fear. If we fear God, we will live his way. If we fear Satan, we will live his way. It is the fear of the enemy's reaction to our faith, which has robbed us for years of the zeal we have needed to obey God. Had Abraham feared the spirits of the gods of Canaan, or if Abraham had feared the people who feared the spirits of the gods of Canaan, he would never have constructed that altar. He would never have bowed his knee in the land of Canaan to the God Jehovah. And you'll never have the victory in your life that you so have longed for until you ignore the empty threats of theologians, of friends, and of Satan. And look to God as the only source for all things in your life. Go on and have faith. Go on and raise up your altar in the land, this land of Canaan. Go on and demonstrate the freedom which is in Christ Jesus and in his spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 
Friends, you need the power of the Holy Ghost. Don't let threats of preachers stop you. They're fearing something other than God when they're warning you not to go the way of the life and the Spirit. I hope you've been blessed by part one of our series on Abraham and that you plan to be with us for part two. I'm John Clark, and for all of us here at the Pioneer Track Society, God bless, and be with us next week as we continue to learn of the faith which confesses that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. He's the fragrance of heaven, the manna song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever. continuing our study of Abraham, this great man of faith, and the study of his faith. He is called the father of the faithful. Paul said, those who are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So we want to get to know this man. We want to understand his faith. And of course, faith is not in a vacuum. Faith is in a relationship with the circumstances of our lives. So we must understand the circumstances in which Abraham lived and breathed and had his being. We want to understand the spirits against which he wrestled. In part one of Abraham's study, we saw that he overcame the spirits of idolatry of his age to trust God, to be God over every circumstance which confronted him. Somehow, without having scriptures to go by, Abraham had it in his heart to believe what Paul wrote many centuries later in the 8th chapter of Romans and the 28th verse. 
And we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You see, Abraham believed that God would be God over his finances if he loved God, and if he loved God, that God would supply his needs. He did not fear what other gods would do to him. He did not place his faith or his fear in any other God but Jehovah. That pleased God, especially in the circumstances which I described to you in part one of Abraham's faith. This week I want to continue studying Abraham's faith and continue to pursue the knowledge of his time to see how it is that he came to be called the friend of God. We want to understand his faith. So as I pointed out last week, and am continuing to point out now, to understand Abraham and his faith, we must understand his world. One of the basic building blocks of Abraham's culture was the importance of what the Bible calls a near kinsman. It was very important to everyone in Abraham's day to have a near kinsman, to live in a family unit. To illustrate this, let's turn back now to the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. Cain, as you know, in a fit of envy and shame, murdered his righteous brother. When the Lord questioned him about this, in verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? Cain said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, notice this, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now let me ask you a question. In our culture, where individualism is so heavily stressed and self Sufficiency is glamorized. It is difficult to understand the horror which fell on Cain in this story. Put yourself in Cain's place. Suppose you had murdered your brother. Suppose it was a particularly vicious crime. Everyone knew you were guilty. You were taken to the courthouse. You were condemned by the jury. And the judge was about to pronounce your sentence. And instead of telling you that you would be sentenced to the gas chamber, instead of telling you that you would be shot or hung or be, uh, or be given a, an injection, a poisonous injection, or be strapped to the electric chair, instead of any of that, instead of telling you that you would suffer death, the judge looked at you and said, Go away. Get out of town. You are cut off from your family. Go away. Many people in our culture would walk out of that courtroom with a chuckle and the thought 
Man, I got off scot-free. All I have to do is leave. But you see, Cain was told to get out. And he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Immediate death would have been preferable to Cain than what God told him. You see, Cain was faced with what the Bible frequently calls being cut off. He was cut off from all family ties. Being cut off was reserved in Israel only for those people who committed the most heinous of crimes. Only in the worst cases was a man cut off. For when a man was cut off from Israel, from his family unit, he was, in reality, cut off from all hope of eternal life. In an earthly sense, your near kinsman was your protection. Living in a family unit was your only protection. Your near kinsman was your avenger. It was safe to live around family because those on the outside knew that you had an avenger. Notice what Cain said here in Genesis chapter 4. After he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In verse 14, he continued to say to God, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. And from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. He knew that without a near kinsman, other men would not have a fear of killing him and taking all that he had, including his wife and children. He had to have an avenger to feel secure. And in order to have an avenger, he had to have a family. But he was cut off in a world filled with evil and wicked-hearted men. He had no near kinsman, so he had no avenger. But that's not all that a near kinsman did. Cain was also cut off from his Redeemer. In hard times, your near kinsman played the part of the Redeemer. So if you had a poor crop year, your near kinsman bailed you out so that you didn't have to sell yourself or your wife or your children into slavery for a few years to pay off the debts that you would have incurred in the growing of your crops in case of sickness or in case of injury where you were not able to care for your family for an extended period of time, the near kinsman was your safety net. And Cain especially feels the crunch of not having a near kinsman because God has cursed the earth so that it will not bring forth its fruit with such vigor as it had before. So now Cain is in double jeopardy. Number one, he's in danger of having a failed crop. And number two, he's in danger of not having a near kinsman to help him get through that failed crop so that he can escape slavery for himself and his family. Last of all, the near kinsman assured you of a name. If a man died not having any sons to continue his name, his near kinsman would raise up a son and name it for him. Cain's punishment was more than he could bear. He was filled with terror. Being cut off was like a living death. Everywhere he went, where people worshipped other gods, he had a terror of the gods.
Jesus because the true God had cast him out. He had a terror of the men everywhere that he went. He had no near kinsman. Look now with me concerning Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Do you see here what God is asking Abraham to do? He is saying, Abraham, cut yourself off from your family unit. Abraham, voluntarily become what I cursed Cain to be. Cut off. Cut yourself off, Abraham, from all earthly avengers. Cut yourself off, Abraham, from all earthly redeemers. Cut yourself off, Abraham, from all earthly security. Put your trust completely in me, the invisible God, and leave behind all earthly confidences. Abraham's faith soared far beyond the fears of his own generation. His faith transcended everything that had ever been known by man, and he placed his faith completely in the invisible God. He trusted the invisible God to be his avenger, to be his protector. He trusted the invisible God to be his redeemer when he got himself into places he could not extricate himself from. He trusted God to continue to give him a son and to continue his name in generations. God, my friend, is looking for men and women who will demonstrate the faith of Abraham to trust God in all things, to be all things for you in this life. Paul described this faith in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, and he says this, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now when Paul says we look not to the things that are seen, he does not mean that we close our eyes to the physical realities around us. To look to in this sense means to trust in. Paul is saying, like Abraham, we have learned to put our trust in the things that are eternal, which cannot be seen by the human eye. We look to the things that are invisible. We look to God, the invisible God, to be our avenger, protector, and assurer of eternal life. God is looking now for a people. Jesus said so. God is looking for people who are willing to submit to the unseen spirit of the invisible God. God is searching now for a people who will receive the unseen baptism. Men are chasing a baptism they can see for security for their souls. It will avail nothing. It is not of the faith of Abraham. 
Abraham was our example of trusting in the unseen God and forsaking the earthly confidences of men. Fear the Lord. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. God is looking for a people who will submit to the invisible baptism of the Holy Ghost. God is looking for a people who have enough faith in Him to trust in the unseen hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. I want to turn real quickly to the 8th chapter of Romans concerning the unseen hope of salvation. Romans 8.24 says that we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, if you're already saved, you already see what you're going to get. Jesus said, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. It is an unseen as yet, an unseen hope in which we trust. We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why doth he yet hope for it? If you're already saved, my friend, what is your hope? 825 in Romans goes on to say, But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And Jesus said, In your patience possess ye your souls. Let me tell you, friend, no matter what you've ever heard before, listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. God is looking for a person. God is looking for a group of people. God is searching the hearts of men to find some who grasp the beauty of the faith of Abraham to trust in the unseen things of God. God is searching for people with enough love of Him that they will cut themselves off from all forms and fashions and religious ceremonies, all of the visible religious symbols behind which men hide from the glory of the risen Christ. Forsake those confidences. They are vain. They will make you vain. You become like what you trust in. If you trust in earthly symbols, you become earthly minded. If you are spiritually minded, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, you have life. To be spiritually minded is life. To be carnally minded is death. If you trust in dead substances to do your soul any good, you will become dead. That's exactly what's killing the spirit. The great spiritual revival that God has tried over and over and over again to get started among us. Began in Azusa Street in 1904 with a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost. In the 1960s, the charismatic movement. But men failed to understand that we should put all our confidences in the invisible spirit of God. And none of our faith is to be put in a religious ceremony. None. Who, listening to me now, will trust that Christ Jesus alone is sufficient 
to do everything that needs to be done to you to make you able to stand clean and pure in the sight of God. It takes the faith of Abraham to do it. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient to make you clean before God? If you really, from your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all your soul, trust Jesus alone to make you right with God, then in practical terms what that means is that you put all of your trust in His Holy Ghost baptism. And you do not practice another. It means in real practical terms. That the only communion you take. Is with him. And with one another in spirit. You are not really of the faith of Abraham. You haven't really cut yourself off. From the false securities of this world. Which you can see with your natural eye. You have not really trusted God to work all things for your eternal good so long as you are participating in symbolic ceremonies. Participation in symbolic ceremonies is contrary to faith in the invisible God. Because God is not in symbolic ceremonies anymore. He gave the Old Testament people symbolic ceremonies until Jesus came who gave us the Spirit. He fulfilled all the symbols and gave us life. Friend, if Jesus Christ baptizes you with His invisible Spirit, how can that baptism be added to or improved upon? I believe that when Jesus Christ baptizes you with His Spirit, that that is all the baptism you need throughout your earthly life and throughout eternity. I believe that God is, is, is satisfied that you are baptized sufficiently. I believe Jesus that much. I believe Jesus is that precious in the sight of God. I know, I know, a symbolic communion is very attractive and appealing. Held in high regard by many. And I believe it is a stench in the nostrils of God. Paul said, the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you. God's communion is invisible and is sufficient. God's baptism is invisible and is sufficient. And God is calling now for someone to demonstrate the faith of Abraham by trusting in the unseeable work of Christ to be sufficient for all things for you. You can't trust Jesus to baptize you all you need to be baptized. You can't trust Jesus to supply all the communion that we need to have. Unless from your heart of hearts. And with all of your heart. You truly believe that all things will be worked together for your good. Because you love God. Rather than the empty, vain, carnal confidences of men. Rather than lay your spiritual life on the line by participating and endorsing 
symbolic ceremonies. Let's lay our lives at the feet of Jesus and let him do his holy work in us. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of